Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode's supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. Ever wonder how American general aviation airplanes get over to Europe? Well, of course they could be shipped, but the better way is just to fly them over. And today, Lynn O'Donnell tells us how she crossed the Atlantic Ocean in small aircraft 52 times in three years. I first got into aviation, I started skydiving first, and I had had a, a slight injury and I missed being up in the air. So I went down to my local airport and asked if uh, I could get an airplane ride. And they said, well, why don't you get a lesson? It costs the same. So I thought, sure, sure, I'll, I'll sit in the left seat and with an, you know, an instructor and take a lesson. And when I first started flying that way, I just fell in love with it. And it became a hobby uh, that I paid a whole lot more attention to than my job, as it turned out. But uh, definitely loved it. It was always intended to be a hobby. I never intended to make a career out of it because this was mid-70s, and I didn't really know any women who had made a career in flying and just never never assumed that uh, was a possibility. So just never considered it. I learned to fly living in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, which, of course, is the home of Piper Aircraft Corporation. And there was lots of flying going on as an, as an employee of Piper, which I was. I was their systems analyst. I was able to use their airplanes pretty much whenever I wanted to. You're going to hate this. $4.35 an hour, including fuel. I could fly a brand new Cherokee with, you know, demonstrator avionics packages in them. And yes, I was spoiled. But I I would go out and fly at lunchtime. I could fly weekends and evenings. And I just uh, started to think maybe I should try to make a living doing this. The only jobs I knew of, we had corporate pilots. Of course, there were flight instructors. And I did get my flight instructor's rating. But also in Lock Haven and for general aviation in general, a lot of... um, of the production of the small aircraft companies were being exported to Europe at that time. About 30, about 30% of the Piper's production was going to Europe. And based in Lock Haven at the time were three companies who ferried airplanes. So I thought, well, I'll go knock on their doors and see if I can uh, start ferrying, you know, bringing the airplanes up from Vera Beach and in from Kansas City and whatnot into Lock Haven where they would put tanks in them, and prepare them for flying overseas. After a year of asking, well, begging, they finally agreed to let me take one airplane. So that was the start. <laughs> it was funny because the, the owner of the company said, well, I don't know what the customer will think if a woman brings the airplane to Europe. And the truth of the matter is the customer could care if a monkey brought the airplane. They just wanted their airplane. And by flying it directly to Europe rather than taking the wings off and creating it and reassembling it, you could, they could get the airplane within a week after it came out of the factory rather than several months. And then they didn't have to you know, put it back together and have it recertified. So um, that was my first paying flying job, was ferrying a single-engine airplane from Lock Haven, Pennsylvania to Europe. Uh, it was a little intimidating. <laughs> but you have to remember, since the whole time I had been flying, I had seen these ferry pilots leave, go to Europe, go to Australia, go to... Africa, South America, and they all came back. So it wasn't as bizarre a thought as other people might think it was. It just was not completely out of the ordinary. There were just people doing this all the time. They put extra big tanks in the airplane, and we'd see the guys filling up and getting ready to go. And you know, a week later, they'd be back to take another airplane. 
yes, it is extreme flying, but it didn't seem that extreme to me at the time. Of course, I had a fair amount of ground school and some training. I had to learn all about carrying a life raft and how to get the airplane prepared to go through customs out of, out of the country and, and just a whole lot of paperwork stuff. And the first trip I took was a Cherokee archer. And I crossed with a, another person who was also flying a Cherokee ar- archer. And we crossed together. But still, <laughs> when you're, you know, you, you fly it to, we flew to Bangor, Maine, to export the airplane. And then we flew to Gander, Newfoundland, uh, before we crossed the ocean, spent the night in Gander. Gander at the time was known as, uh, and ha- actually had been since early aviation, as the Trans-Oceanic Plane Stop. And an awful lot of, since Alcock and Brown, people had departed from St. John's, Newfoundland, and from Gander, Newfoundland, to cross the Atlantic. The thinking at the time was it was better to go straight across, flying from Gander, Newfoundland, to Shannon, Ireland, rather than go up through Greenland and Iceland. For two reasons. The, the weather prediction in Greenland and Iceland was just not reliable. And then the good old money number is that the fuel up there was extraordinarily expensive. So we tanked the airplanes and uh, launched with very cheap Canadian fuel and departed on a 1,721 nautical mile cross-country, or cross-ocean, I should say. The weather briefers who were used to briefing low-level flights across the ocean up there were the best in the world. And of course, we completely relied on them because our method of navigation was basic old private pilot dead reckoning. This was long before GPS, and actually it was before small portable Loran units. So we went off just basically with, uh, you know, your true course corrected for magnetic, corrected for winds, and which would give you a magnetic heading. And you went off and held a magnetic heading for X period of time, usually every five degrees of longitude, and plotted your time, plotted your course, and, and that's how we crossed the ocean. What Lynn's describing here is the standard process of how to complete a long-distance cross-country, or in this case cross-ocean, flight plan. But even planning a 50-mile cross-country flight over land is very involved. You have to plot your course so that you're not flying into areas or altitudes you're not supposed to. With that course, then you have to find out what your compass headings will be for each of those legs, and then you have to correct those headings for a magnetic variation, which is the difference between magnetic and true north, and magnetic deviation, which are errors in compass readings due to internal and external magnetic fields to the airplane. All of this is then applied with weather and wind predictions to create the final flight plan to follow. If any of your information is incorrect, you could fly off course. That's why when you do a cross-country over land, you set landmarks to checkpoint your progress. But for Lynn, she's flying well over a thousand miles with no landmarks and relying on airspeeds and time to checkpoint her progress and determine when to change the next course on the flight plan. She is sometimes in communication with people on the ground, but with no way to land or turn around after a certain point, Lynn would have to deal with new information and complications in route. That's completely doable, obviously. And if I were, actually, if I were going to cross the ocean now with a GPS, I would do that basic math, the basic flight planning, the basic coursework in case everything or anything failed. We carried a big old HF antenna and an HF radio. It was a trailing wire antenna, so you had to, it was on a reel, so you had to crank it out and tune it. <laughs> and that was our navigate. That's how we communicated our positions across the ocean. And it's just standard, standard position reporting. It was always nice to see another airplane crossing the ocean, going the same way. One would hope it was going the same way. A lot of times we'd look up and see the 
the jets go into Europe and we could see their contrails and say, well, that's another indication they were going the right way. And we would call them up on the emergency frequency and they would answer us and we'd chat. So the first trip, yeah, the first trip was interesting. Of course, it's all night flying because you want to arrive in Europe in the morning when the weather's usually good. And it's, it's tiring. You're, you're in an airplane with the airplane noise at altitude, usually 9, 10, 11,000 feet with the vibration and noise, and you're pretty tired. I think when I first, on my first trip when I got to Ireland and had to, after I landed and, and, and had to sign in, I was almost too tired to spell my name correctly. It was just between the nerves and, the, and just the, the flying of it. Luckily, most airplanes then had autopilots, and so at least it took that, that aspect out of it. It was still an interesting trip. It was nice to fly with other, other airplanes. Um, in a, in a Cherokee, a flight planned for 125 knots. It was normally a 12-hour flight. My shortest flight was in a Navajo, just under eight hours, like seven hours and 58 minutes or something. That was a nice trip. I took a Cessna 340, which was pressurized, and that was a lovely trip because you're not nearly so tired. I took that to England. Took a Cheyenne over to the Hanover Air Show and brought it back. That airplane, we did not tank or put HF in, so... Uh, we did stop in Greenland and Iceland with that. That was a pretty nice trip. I wish that all my trips had been in a Piper Cheyenne. <laughs> Twice I actually did f- fly through Greenland and Iceland, and um, I'm glad I did. Iceland was fascinating, expensive, fascinating, but a family there, there were two of us, took us out and showed us the countryside. Another time I was coming westbound with a Britain-Norman Islander, stopped in Iceland, <clears throat> and then the next night in Greenland, where because of weather I had to sit for three days. So very few people have had a tour of any parts of Greenland, but I can tell you right now, <laughs> once you've seen a whole lot of rock with ice on it, it pretty much all looks the same. The people were wonderful. I was glad to see that in my rear view mirror. I did this for three years. A lot of times we'd fly up to Gander and you'd have to wait till obviously till weather conditions are just perfect to do this because you had no margin for error. And so you'd maybe be sitting in Gander for two or three days waiting for the right conditions and other ferry pilots would show up. And of course, they're also waiting for the good weather. So we'd all try to cross in a bunch, not always with the same speeds, but we'd talk to each other, read to each other, ask each other to pass the salt, you know, whatever, silliness. And uh, got to be a little bit of a band of brothers, so to speak. It was a small group of us who did this, what other people consider a crazy profession. Now, you may be wondering if Lynn was the only woman pilot doing this. No, no. There were very few of us. But there was one woman, Louise Sackey, who had been doing this. She ferried mostly Beechcraft, who had been doing this for years. She was very well known. She had over 300 crossings. There was another company, Globe Aero, that was out of Lakeland, Florida, had a, a, a gal flying for them. She did also a fair amount of crossings to the Pacific. But no, there were very few of us, but no, not, not the only one. But in the three years that I did that, total crossings, 52. 50 eastbound and two westbound. I think about 30% of my airplanes were twin-engine airplanes. The others were singles. I've just built up enormous amounts of instruments time, enormous amounts of night time, enormous amounts of cross-country time, and uh, made a lot of friends with some of some the customers, who were mostly the, uh, the distributors. I never crossed the Pacific, and I never did any flights down into Africa. All my trips were to Europe. Once we got the airplanes to Ireland, we had to take the ferry tanks out and then uh, leave the tanks there. They were wonderfully made baffled tanks, so 
people were glad to have them, fishermen especially, because they'd use them for on their boats. A lot of times spend the night and then launch in the next morning to take them into our destination, Norway, Germany, Switzerland, Greece. A lot went to England. England and Germany were our two primary distributors. Took one to France. Came home on the airline. Bring all the turnbuckles and everything back. If we had, bring the HF back, bring our life raft back. So we carried a lot of stuff. Of course, all our charts, which were numerous if you're going through Europe. Back back in the day of paper charts, you remember that? <laughs> this was, like I said, before iPads and before GPSs and, and the wonderful guidance that we have crossing doing uh, cross-country flights today. I flew mostly Pipers. I did most of my work for Piper. We also took a fair number of Grumman's, Cheetahs and Tigers and the uh, Cougar. Finished all that after three years, and I had lots of flying time. Went off and got my ATP and never had a desk job after that. <laughs> never did. After I'd ferried those three years, I got into charter and then a commuter, and then I flew cargoes. I got my flight engineer rating and applied and ended up flying cargo for one of the UPS carriers before, before UPS had their own flight department. Then I went to Eastern Airlines until their strike. And then I got hired by Pan Am, who two years later dissolved in bankruptcy. And then I got uh, picked up by United, luckily, because by then I was 40, almost 45 years old. And I, I thought my career was over, you know, when Pan Am died. United picked up a lot of people around then, and I had a, ended up with 15 and a little over 15 years of very nice career with United. Made it to captain, got to fly 747s, go to Europe, go to across the Pacific, fly 777s, of course, all on the right seat, and then 67 in the left seat. And so I don't know very many people when I was ferrying them or flying them, a jet across the Atlantic knew that I hadn't done it 30 years earlier in a little <laughs> single engine, itty bitty LBF, little bitty flyers. You can interpret that any way you like. And what, I think one of the most satisfying things for me one time, I was flying in the 777 from Kennedy to London. And of course, we'd always monitored 121.5. And a ferry pilot called up on 121.5 and asked if we could relay his position because his HF, HF is, <clears throat> is unreliable sometimes. It skips and you can't always make a report. And he called up and I heard him and I said, oh, I've got to answer this because... Um, Many, many times, Pan Am, TWA, Air France, British Airways crossing the ocean had helped me out with relaying a position report. So I was able to return the favor. That was just wonderful to do that. He and I, he was flying a Bonanza, and uh, he and I had a nice chat. But it was really nice to be in a, a big jet, you know, with flight attendants bringing you coffee and with real bathrooms. <laughs> Unlike sitting in an airplane where you... The back seat was 90 gallons of fuel, and the right seat had a 44-gallon tank in it. And you had to, you know, in the Cherokee, open the right door, climb up over that ferry tank, drop into the left seat, which was full forward because of everything you were carrying, and crossing the ocean for 12 hours, crunched into the, into the left seat like that. So yes, crossing the ocean in a, in a, in a jet was, a, ah, yes, much nicer, much nicer. And I was very lucky to be able to do all of that. So how old were you when you did the fairing job? I was 30. I didn't learn to fly until I was 26. That was a very late start. Just, you know, in college and I just didn't have the money. But I ended up working for Piper after I'd worked in the Census Bureau for some years. I was uh, back at Piper and uh, that's where my whole life changed. I never did like that desk job. <laughs> it was, And I never liked being inside a building all day. And so for me, flying turned out to be, you know, a career that I liked actually loved. It wasn't the smoothest career, but I, I got to the top of the heap 
and I had a wonderful time to it, met great people along the way. I don't know if I went back if I could do it any differently, if I would. It's all been interesting and fun. And since I retired, I still don't have a desk job. and <laughs> don't want one. It's nice to be able to find a job that you're not only good at, but you know, that you really love to do, and, and somebody actually pay you to do it. Lynn O'Donnell is retired from the airlines today and lives in Spruce Creek Air Park. And of course, she still flies small airplanes. I always I flew little airplanes the whole time, even while I was working with the airlines. I always kept kept at it because I love it. I have a little uh, 1947 Stinson, it's a tail dragger, a little bit of a challenge. I do not fly at night anymore. I don't cross big bodies of water anymore. I don't fly instruments anymore. And I love my GPS. <laughs> but I still really actually like flying just by looking out the window and finding my way around. This airplane loves grass strips, and, and that's mostly where I go. Her Stinson is affectionately named Tootsie, after people referred to its brown and cream paint scheme as resembling the wrapper of the popular chocolate-flavored candy. Since then, Lynn has embraced the apt comparison and continued the Tootsie Roll theme outside and in the airplane. She uses it to promote aviation at events, especially to young aspiring female aviators, and even has been known to hand out Tootsie Rolls while there. You can check out pictures of Lynn, Tootsie, and also see what her flight plans look like for flying over the ocean, along with more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook. <laughs>